0: Hello everybody, today's episode is brought to you by Nightfire, publisher of Dark Stars' New Tales of Darkest Horror, edited by John F.D. Taff. This collection contains 12 original stories from big-name horror authors, including friend of the show Stephen Graham Jones, Ama Katsu, and Caroline Kepnes. Dark Stars also has stories from up-and-coming voices Cheshia Burke, Usman T. Malik, and Priya Sharma, and more. The collection includes an introduction by Josh Mallerman and an afterword from Ramsey Campbell. It's got a lot of stuff, is what we're saying. The stories run the gamut from traditional to modern, from dark fantasy to neo-noir... You know, things that would be up your alley as KingCast listeners. Dark Stars is on sale now everywhere books are sold. That's right, Eric. And this
1: week's episode is also sponsored by the good folks over at Yellow Veil Pictures. Following a midnight launch at the Cannes Film Festival, Gaspar Noé's psychedelic horror Lux Eterna is now playing in New York City and opens this Thursday, May 12th in Los Angeles with a nationwide theatrical release on May 20th. Preparing for a shoot, horror icons Beatrice Dalle and Charlotte Gainsbourg are backstage telling stories about past productions gone awry, witches, and being burned at the stake. Meanwhile, ego and technical problems turn to psychotic outbreaks as the shoot gradually plunges into chaos. See what IndieWire called a disturbing outburst of light, color, and 3D illusions by heading over to luxaternamovie.com. That's L-U-X-A-E-T-E-R-N-A movie dot com to watch the trailer and to find out more
0: information about this release and it is once again time to sing the praises of our overlords over at fangoria this classic magazine has been at it for over 40 years and is better than ever the highly collectible publication comes right to your door four times a year and each issue of fangoria is filled to the brim with articles exploring every nook and cranny of genre filmmaking past present and future with all the most exciting journalists filmmakers and horror know-it-alls to guide the way including your beloved king cast hosts from time to time I have an article in the upcoming issue that I'm very proud of. It involves Cujo. I'll just say that much. This high quality writing will only ever appear within the physical pages of the magazine. So if you want to join in on the fun, you'll need to subscribe. And to do that, all you have to do is head on over to Fangoria.com and sign up. And since KingCast listeners are in the family, you can enter in the promo code KingCast at checkout to save a whopping 25% off your entire order. Now, having said
1: all of that, on with the show.
0: My name is Stephen King. The ice is gonna break! Rob, Bad Rob. love! You guys wanna go see
1: a dead
0: body? Well, sometimes, death is better.
1: Hello and welcome back to the KingCast on the Fangoria Podcast Network. My name is Scott Wampler.
0: And I'm Eric
1: Vespi And we are your hosts. The last time this week's guest was on the show, we straight up harangued him about revisiting Nightmares and Dreamscapes' Crouch End. Do I say dreamscapes? Well, we just did. About revisiting Nightmares and Dreamscapes' Crouch End, one of our all-time favorite Stephen King short stories. And you'll never guess what. He took our advice and is here today to present his findings. You'll know him as the director of films like Ain't Them Body Saints. A Ghost Story, Pete's Dragon, and last year's glorious The Green Knight, as well as the forthcoming Disney feature Peter Pan and Wendy. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, David Lowry has made his triumphant return to the KingCast stage. How are you doing
2: today, sir? I am doing excellently. Thank you for having me back. Yes, of of course. Anytime, anytime. I, uh, I do
0: love that, that your task is to hit everything that's like w- one of the things that we champion on the show. So it's yes. like we champion revival and, and you came in into the revival episode. We champion uh, Crouch End and now you're here for Crouch End. Yeah. What's the next one? What was what, the other one that we? Yeah, what's something else? You, well, I'll tell you what, you better play your cards
1: right or we're going to start championing Dreamcatcher and then you're going to be in big trouble.
2: <laughs> you know, you know that I was, I, I think when we first were emailing about titles, that was like, I think the first thing I brought up just because I was. I was still I was still at that phase where I was like could could this secretly be good? is it <laughs> my memory is my memory deceiving me? Might I actually enjoy this movie? Uh, uh, I have not gone back to find out
1: I was gonna say, and did you uh follow up on that not yet'll yes. save well, it. I'll
2: save it for a rainy day
1: probably a good idea I um, love your optimism i would I would like to start uh, by telling you um uh on behalf of us and behalf of all our listeners. Something that that may have not occurred to you at this point, but I'm just going to go ahead and say it: Green Knight got robbed at the Oscars.
2: I appreciate that, and yes. uh, I love I love saying that I don't make movies uh, for Oscars or awards, but I do always <laughs> want my collaborators to get you know their their just desserts and. I don't know. I really thought that the makeup and the production design and the music was pretty cool in Green Knight. So yeah, cinematography, yeah, that's, yeah costume um,
1: design, dev. I mean, come on, dude. Uh, I I definitely. But you know well, what? The good news is you didn't have to be there to see the Oscars live, presumably, and uh, sit through. You would have seen
0: history, though. Uh, well, yeah. that's true,
1: but also like you know, it kind of overshadowed everything else that happened that night.
2: Yeah, I, I have friends who were there, and uh, and it was definitely, like, it was a thing. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, you, you were there when that happened.
0: Uh, you also missed out on getting that uh, nominee gift bag that apparently had, like, $20,000 coupons for liposuction and stuff in it.
2: Yeah, you ever, I, you ever I, get some of those? Like I mean, the gift, the crazy I've never gift gotten bags? anything like that. I got, like, a pair of jeans at Sundance s <laughs> the laggiest I ever do you think there's like an expiration date on these liposuction coupons there's well there's oh, gotta yeah. Be. Yeah. yeah it's yeah. got to be like within six months or something I don't sure. need it now but maybe in the future
1: <laughs> right as I as I mentioned previously in your in your intro uh the last time you were here we talked a little bit about uh Crouch end wasn't the discussion as to whether or not it would work as a feature film or am I, mean, I misremembering that? That might have hmm. been another
2: conversation. Well, I know we we spent a great deal of time talking about revival. Yes. And whether or not, you know, that would work as a feature. And if it was a feature, whether the changes I proposed were, were just and good or, or horribly sacrilegious. Right. Um, but Crouch End, I can't remember if we discussed, you know, how, how deeply we got into that. All I remember was that you said that I needed to read it. And and uh, in short order, I did just that. Mm. You didn't happen to listen to the audio version, did you? No, I, I've, I've since listened to the one other episode you've done discussing this title and, and have heard you sing the praises of, of Tim Curry uh, yes. reading it, but I've not had the chance to, to hear it myself. Definitely worth a, a visit at some point. Um, so we've already covered your, your Stephen King origin story uh, we, we the have. last I, time you were on the show. The, the one thing that I don't think I brought up last time that mm. is probably my most indelible King memory. Mm. Was that my dad and I read The Green Mile together, mm-hmm. one month at a time, and of, of you know of, of all the stuff I read with well of Stephen King, uh, all the the books I loved. I think the memory of like walking to the grocery store once every you know I, somehow I knew what day it was going to be released or roughly what day it was coming out, and I'd walk to the grocery store. And, and pick it up. And my dad and I would both, you know, take turns reading it. And it's one of the, like the, the happiest memories I have of doing something with my dad before I became like a surly teenager who didn't want <laughs> to speak to their father.
0: <laughs> oh man, that's, that's lovely. I, well, that's also what I love about that. That's the, the, my more relatable version of like Oh, I went hunting with my dad or I went fishing with my dad. Like I didn't give a shit about any of that stuff, but being able to bond with a, a parent over loving a movie or loving a book or something, that's way more in my, uh, my, it hits me in, in the, uh, the heart zone place.
2: Yeah. It was something he never, he never read. As far as I know, other Stephen King books, I don't have that, you know, that, that quintessential bookshelf, the parents bookshelf that had the classic King title right. on it. We didn't have that growing up, but that title was something we both, could bond over. And it was, it was one of those things I, I, I cherish to this day.
1: I'm trying to remember if I ever agreed about a book with one of my parents. <laughs> and I don't think I did. Like my mom read a lot of King when I was, when I was growing up. Um And she seemed to like them, but I don't, I don't honestly remember having any, there was no overlap. We were never reading right. them at the same time. And it was, you know, Kind of just something I went off in the corner and did by myself. I don't I don't recall discussing it, but yeah, it does sound like it would be cool.
2: Yeah my my parents were very they they you know wanted me to read like Charles Dickens and Shakespeare and I did. They were they, you know my dad was a theologian so he was always uh, uh, recommending C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and things like that that would have like a clear. Religious uh, angle to it, and I think that was one of the reasons why the Green Mile worked so well for us to read right. together because it has that aspect to it.
0: Yeah, there's a uh, I, I, we had uh, Flanagan on, and we kind of were getting into that uh, uh, that title. And there is something. Well, one, there's a few things that you mentioned that like is almost a universal thing with uh, with Green Mile, which I find fascinating, and that's everybody bought at least one of those issues at the grocery store and like, and, <laughs> and I, and I, rem, I very vividly remember seeing them. They were at the checkout counter where like the national yes. and and all that shit were, that's just where they were. And it was so weird and such a brilliant marketing thing yeah, to yeah. these little one and done things to throw them out at the uh, impulse buy rack, you know? Uh, so there's that. And then the, the, the religious angle. I remember we kind of got into a debate on whether or not John coffee was supposed to be, uh, the allegory for Jesus, right. The JC, John coffee yeah. and all that. And the one hang up that I had about that is that he actually, you know, <laughs> he has Percy, he punishes Percy in that and then murdered, he becomes vengeance, right. At, at a mm. certain, at one point in that he gives that sickness to Percy and then Percy shoots uh, wild bill. And, uh, and that is, that is like the one wrinkle in that whole theory, I think, is that, uh, uh, is that that's never was Jesus's. Uh, yeah, it's not Christ-like. It's not Christ-like at all, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, it's what the audience wants to see and what we need in that, in that moment. So, yeah. But what this book presupposes is maybe it could be. <laughs> Yeah, so, th- that's just the book of the Bible we never got. Exactly. It's an <laughs>
2: apocryphal ap- apocryphal book.
1: <laughs> so for for anyone that is unfamiliar with Crouch End or did not hear the episode we did on this previously, which was like one of our first, maybe the first 10 episodes we did, I think, uh, with our buddy Rob Sheridan. For, for anyone that hasn't heard that or read the story, would you be willing to lay out the uh, the plot of of Crouch end for us?
2: yeah, um Crouch end is a a wonderful short story about uh police constable Farum, a young a young officer at the Crouch end police station who one lonely night uh, bears witness to the hysterical tale of one doris freeman an American woman who who barges into the station screaming, Lonnie, you've got to find Lonnie. And Lonnie is her husband who has gone missing. And over the course of that night, she regales uh, uh, Constable Farum and his his partner, Vetter, with an increasingly disturbing tale uh, that begins earlier that same day when, um, when Doris and Lonnie leave their two children at the hotel. And she... Points out they're staying at the hotel Intercontinental, and they uh, and they go pay a visit to one of Vlani's business associates at his home in the suburb of Crouch End, which is where the police station that the story takes place is in. Um, and this supposedly quick trip starts off on a bad foot right away because they have an incredibly hard time finding a cab. And then once they do find a cab, a one who, who who is willing to take them to Crouch End. Uh, Lonnie realizes he's lost the address of his friend's house, and all he knows is that it's somewhere in Crouch End, and he doesn't really know what Crouch End even is. Uh, but it's too late now. The cab is driving, it's heading there. They're on their way to a place that, um, as King puts it earlier in the in the text, uh, it's a place where the barriers, barriers between our world and the next are thinner. And what happens from there? as as doris relates to constable farm is a is a tale of increasing surreality and one in which i think probably uh you know it, it's one of king's most explicit uh trips into lovecraftian territory so explicit mm-hmm. that he spends probably the first two pages uh name checking lovecraft and discussing lovecraft and and what lovecraft did best um and it reminded me it's sort of like in, in uh, Unbreakable, having, you know, a superhero movie in which, you know, a character is like, so let me tell you about comic books. Let me about <laughs> right. It's like this is a, a Lovecraftian tale that begins with a character saying, let me tell you about this guy, H.P. Lovecraft and what he what he wrote about and what he did best. Do you would you consider that
1: this his most Lovecraftian story or is anything else coming to mind? Well, I know revival's got a little
2: revival. Little friends, revival does it, uh, you know, quite well. And there's and there's interesting parallels to revival in this, uh, particularly in some of the the monstrous descriptions towards the end. Yes. Um. But again, like I have, not, I am not as familiar with King as you guys are enough to be able to say that there's a, a more Lovecraftian one than this. I think the mist uh, certainly is as well. Um, hmm. Although the movie, I think, takes it even further than the book, if my memory is correct. The no, it's La-Prat- not. That's not true. The, the The book ends in the same way, right? With seeing a <clears throat> this creature crossing the street. yeah the behemoth, yeah, 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 and, yeah, and yeah, it's yeah. just it's just the suicide stuff that happens. That's the that's <laughs> yes, the <decision. laughs>
1: yeah that that notoriously upbeat ending is, uh, <laughs> it was original for the film. But, um, I think I think it's as certainly as most explicitly Lovecrafty in the story. Um but but yeah, there's there's Lovecraft an, DNA and a bunch it's of a, it's
2: support. in some ways like a, a primer on Lovecraft because he has Officer Vetter just explain the ins and outs of Lovecraft to Farum, and then the story progresses uh in a very in very Lovecraftian fashion. Yeah. Um,
0: well, yeah, I mean, and not even just like tangentially Lovecraft, like Shoggoth and and all the Lovecraft uh, uh, terminology for for the old gods and stuff. The exact names and things are it's used, like Yog Sagoth
2: uh, is mentioned at the yeah, end. Yeah. And I do. I wasn't sure if the other ones were the blind piper blind. Yeah. Piper, Correct. Yeah. What a fucking ominous
1: phrase that is, huh? <laughs> it's so good. It's the blind piper. Good Lord. It scares the shit out of me and I have no idea why.
2: <laughs> and one of the great things about this is that in it, the table is set so clearly, like even if you haven't read Lovecraft or much Lovecraft, I haven't read that much Lovecraft. I've read like the, the greatest hits I would say. Yeah. Enough to know who the yogg Sothoth is from the Dunwich Horror and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But the, um, the table is set so clearly that you think you know what you're in for.
1: Mm-hmm. And then
2: it still manages to completely fuck with your head when you're reading it. And and the way in which the the they delve into the surreality of of their journey, and the way King writes about the light, and the way yes. the, the sun is hitting the buildings and disappearing behind the buildings, just so it really the the disorientation that Doris feels is you know the reader feels that as well, and it almost makes you carsick in their their taxi. Yes, don't need to crouch in. So by the time you get there, you are so. You're as, you're as disoriented as she is and, and unprepared for what's to come. Absolutely. That's the case. It's, it, the the whole
1: thing feels very hallucinogenic to me and um, fractured. You know, there's, you get like little bits and pieces of things without full explanation as the story goes along and you never get any explanation for most of them. It's, and, and, and it's sort of, like, it's the thing, one of the first things I always think about when I think about Crouch Ant is the scene where uh Lonnie and his wife are, they they come to, like, a row of, like, tall bushes. Yeah. Separating them from a yard. And they hear, like, some commotion going on on the other side. And they can see, like, sort of through the breaks and the branches and shit, like, this, this black figure, like, rising out of a hole in the ground or something. And man, that <laughs> it's it's one of the best sequences. I, this is my favorite Stephen King short story, you know, and this is that's pro- possibly my favorite sequence in it is just so inexplicable. And the way he describes it is just pitch perfect. Like, I you think have he, no he just, trouble. To, which,
2: uh, the phrase I remember is that he refers to like a hole in the ground that is vaguely man shaped. and yes. something Coming out of that.
1: There's like sloshing sounds or That's something.
2: It's like, it's like one line. One, it's like a paragraph unto itself. It's like, it was sloshing.
1: <laughs> and That's those so words like,
2: <laughs> are so wrong. What do you
1: find to be the most memorable part of the story? You got the the bikers with rat heads. You got the little kids. One of them's got a, a like a, a claw baby hand. Those things, um, those you've things got the... are,
2: are less scary to me because they're they're more overt. You know, those are things that are like, Not that he tips his hand too far in any direction, but those are things that are are overtly creepy and unsettling. And to me, there are two things in here that really kind of freak me out. And one of them is the way the light is changing. And that is something that I get, I rarely get carsick. I rarely get, you know, uh, I I have no trouble riding in the backseat of a car unless it's around sunset and something about the light hitting me and hitting my eyes while moving at that time of day makes me nauseous and want to throw up. And that's this interesting. Just brought that to the forefront and the way the light is changing. You know, we all live in Texas and you know what it's like when there's a tornado coming and the sky turns green and yeah. you have this feeling that everything is wrong. And and you get that feeling in here too. It's just like there's something going wrong in nature. And and those descriptions of the sky, of the sunset that goes on for too long, that goes from being bright orange to being purple, are things that I feel very familiar with, and they really set me on edge. Right. Well, that's the creepiest
0: thing about this whole deal. It's not that it's not like a Children of the Corn uh, thing that's happening here. It's not like they find this this suburb that you know just exists. It's something that's like next door to our reality mm-hmm. right and things are just a little bit off whether it's the kids with a claw hand or you know whatever it's it it is recognizable but not it, it's an uncanny valley correct um, thing and and that you know that, that's something that sticks with you and i that's also what makes this kind of explicitly lovecraftian is that there that's the same tone that lovecraft could nail when he was at his his height of just like this fishing village is something I recognize. I've seen fishing villages, but something's off. Something's yeah, that, wrong here. Yeah.
2: Uncanny is the right word because it's something where where everything feels mostly normal, but just there's one aspect of it that is slightly off that makes you feel that something is something wrong is afoot, and and maybe that wrongness has to do with the thinness of the of the membrane between the dimensions. Um, and you know, we're practical people. We know that when the sky turns green, it probably just means there's a tornado coming and we need to hide, but maybe it means something else. And that's that type of like uncertainty, uh, really gets to the heart of the discomfort this story, uh, excels in the other thing, which is related to that is that one sequence where, uh, farms as Farnham's asking a vetter about, you know, these different places and he's like, ever heard of, uh, you know. Crouch Hill Road. He's like a Crouch Lane, of course, but not Crouch Hill Road. And then they get to to slaughter Tawin. Mm-hmm. And and he's like, he's just like, oh, surely you mean uh, town. He's like, no, she said Towen. And he's like, well, can, couldn't it be that? That's uh, what, you know, old uh, Druid sacrificial uh, grounds were called. And he just kind of throws it away, like throws that <laughs> away. And it just like sticks with you. And it reminded me, I mean, when you when you travel someplace that is ancient, and you'd get this in the US, certainly, but because we're so conditioned to, you know, the the lineage of Western civilization, I feel it more profoundly, perhaps wrongly, but more profoundly when I'm like in other countries. And yeah. when you go someplace where something terrible has happened, and you just can feel that history there sometimes before you even are aware of the history. There was this one time where we were uh, location scouting for Green Knight, and we went to this castle um, in Ireland called Leap Castle, and it's a wonderful, quaint old castle, and like most castles, it's quite small, and it's now owned by a husband and wife who have been just restoring it, and they give us a tour of it and um, take us up to the chapel, which is on the top floor. And how many? I'm sorry, how many stories is it? It's like three, probably. Okay. Right and this on. is like a castle that's not much bigger than like a brownstone in New York. It's not huge, gotcha. and and so there's a the chapel that's on the top floor, and it's they've left that largely untouched, which was sort of in in, in a lovingly restored home. Uh, this one felt it felt very stark, and they start telling us about how, um, a, you know, in the fift- fourteen fifteen hundreds the People who had built that castle. There was a, a familial dispute, and one of the brothers was a priest. And in the middle of mass, the whole family was gathered for mass, and the brother was performing the the, the ceremony. And another brother burst through the door with his friends and slaughtered the the priest uh, mid mass. And oh, Lord. And and the space was so little. That was the thing. Like you know, in medieval times, everyone was. Smaller than they are now, like everyone's shorter, so like everything's very cramped when you're in these castles. And all of a sudden, you just realize, like, oh, I'm standing on the place, I'm standing right where someone was brutally murdered, and you feel that history seeping into your feet. And another detail about this castle we then found out was that they, when they were doing the restorations, they found, um, like a a pit, a murder pit, basically, full of spikes and skeletons. And skeletons have been like you know, people have been thrown down this like oubliette. And, I was going to
1: say, like a fucking legit oubliette. And
2: a legit oubliette. And um, and they didn't tell us this detail, but I was researching the castle afterwards. But one of the um, when they were excavating all the skeletons out of there, which were numerous, um, that they found a watch from the 1800s, which meant that that what had been in use as recently as 200 years ago.
1: <laughs> Holy shit.
2: And anyway, I, I say all of this partially because it's a good story, but also when you're in a place like that, you start to feel the 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 boundaries between past and present and good and evil start to to really it they, it gets thin. And part of that is contextual because you hear about it, like people are telling you these things, and you are seeing it with with a you know a new perspective, and and the doors of perception are certainly you know greatly influenced by context but i also really feel that sometimes you walk into a place like that and you just feel that it's wrong like you're like i don't feel good here something something is setting me off from the get-go and i think without getting too much into like what uh the reality of of these of these beliefs are and these ideas about like different dimensions and thin places i do think that the idea of time being a non-linear construct is something that there's i believe in that i think that's true Um, We haven't just figured out how to parse it yet. And sometimes you get to these spots where you are feeling the past and present kind of commingling. And I think what's so great about Crouch End and, and, and some of the great Lovecraft materials is that not only are the past and present commingling, but a different realm of existence entirely. Something that is not just human history, but a history that is beyond human history. And it's something that we innately, I think, understand. You know, when you're reading something like that you, because you have that familiarity, whether you believe in it or not, of like of entering a room and feeling ill at ease, it doesn't take that much nudging to get it a little further on and really believe the the for a moment, even while you're reading the book or re- watching the movie or whatever it may be, that that there's some something even further beyond that that is that is in classic Lovecraftian terms too terrible to comprehend.
0: Interesting, yeah, and that's something that you explored in uh, Ghost Story a lot. Is that fluidity of time and and the how it can overlap and be both way in the future and also in the past at the same time. And yeah,
2: it's something that I think is, you know, physicists are currently hard at work trying to crack that code and figuring out how time actually functions, what it actually means, you know, the ways in which we move through it. And maybe someday we'll figure it out. But then there's also always that question, like, you know, there's all these uh, articles right now about, the the large hadron collider is being restarted for the first time in a while and every time i think about that i'm like oh like is is this the machine that's going to open up the portal into the the dark dimensions? And, <laughs> and, and will physics ever go too far? I don't actually believe that. I love physics. I love the idea of trying to crack these codes, but it does provide wonderful fodder for uh, for <laughs> for horror storytelling.
0: Yeah, well, wasn't the whole like the last time it was turned on was what like like twenty sixteen or something? Right when everything just went to shit for for forever. <laughs> oh, that's yeah.
2: an interesting theory. I like that. Yeah.
0: So, it we 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 went into the bad place, the wrong, we got the wrong dimension. <laughs> we swapped we swapped with the mirror mirror world. Precisely.
1: Yeah, they're living it up over there. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Meanwhile, here in and, Sucktown.
2: <laughs> and so, to answer the question that Scott you've posed initially, I think this could be a great movie. Yeah. I, yeah. I think there are a lot of a lot of little threads that you could follow, um, whether it's Farnum going off at the end at the story and disappearing or Doris going back to her kids. Like what, you know, mm. there, there's, there's a little afterword about what happened uh, with her. But right. I think you could get into that. Like what, you know, obviously you could be like, did something follow her? Does she get drawn back? Who knows? I think there's a wonderful, uh, a wonderful opportunity to to turn this into a film. And all of those opportunities were not taken by the green tea adaptation.
1: <laughs> no, no. I was just about to ask if you had seen that.
2: I, I did. And I don't like to speak poorly of any work of art or mm-hmm. all, all I'll say is one thing that struck me about it was when, when Doris is, I can't remember if they use the actualist names or not, but um, when she's in the town, there's like a trash blowing down the street and a cronetto wrapper <laughs> blows up against their ankle <laughs> in exactly the same fashion that that same rapper blew up against the fence in the world's end. <laughs> and I, I was like, what is, is going guess. on here? I was like looking at the dates. I was like, could there have been some sort of correlation? Like surely Edgar is not uh, paying homage to this movie. <laughs> and no, it, It's just, you know, that's, I think that uh, entire series was shot in Australia. And I imagine the production designer was, thinking, okay, what's British? What can we do here to make this feel like uh, it's taking (laughs) place in the UK? Because it definitely does not look like it's in the UK. Um, And uh, and he's like, ice cream wrappers, that'll do the trick. Everyone will suddenly realize that we shot this right in the authentic crouch end if we just put a Cornetto wrapper blowing down the street.
1: It's been a while since I saw it, but I I remember, you know, it's... It's interesting that you're talking about how light is described in the story because one of the chief complaints I had about the episode of the Nightmares and Dreamscapes that adapted this was that it's it bright. looked like, yeah, it's very bright and it's all evenly lit, evenly lit and overlit, lit and um, all it all looks extremely fake. And and on top of that, it's fake in like an overly clean way or something, you know, like it doesn't the 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 town it sh- itself like Crouch End should look kind of grimy and sort of run down a little bit and, you know, not quite silent Hill yeah. uh, mirror world shit, but like, you know, it shouldn't look like, you know, the most high class shopping center in Austin. Well, and that's, yeah. that's what it looks like. A lot of those
2: scenes. I'm imagining that, you know, it was, if I, if my information is correct, they made it in Australia where the light is different, like light down in that part of the world is just different. Um, really? I didn't know that it there's you know, the hole in the ozone layer. If you're to New Zealand and, and Australia, it's just like, you're going to get a different type of light than you do anywhere else. Hmm. Um, and I also imagine they've had three days to shoot it and didn't have time to say like, <laughs> all right, let's wait for the light to get lower in the sky so that we can get a little bit more moodiness. Uh, there are all the reasons why a piece of filmed entertainment might look that way. Um, but one only of the Terrence Malick had been the one making yeah, this or, or if you'd had like, I don't know, like we, go into, we could go into the litany of uh, reasons why that, <laughs> Deficiencies. that episode does not look great. But one of the main ones is like, if you were to do this, you would want to shoot it on location because right. it doesn't take much to go to these old suburbs in London for them to feel, again, you feel that sense of history there. From what I understand, King wrote this short story after getting lost in London. And it is a place where if you don't know if you don't have your bearings you can wind up in some suburb that's not particularly far away but just feels like you've traveled very far (laughs) off the path um especially if you're in a car because it's such a you know taking the tube is a great way to get from one place to another but if you're in a car in london and you don't know your way around it's very i i we did some location scouting um in wales for, for peter pan and wendy and i started off in London and got in a car and hit the road and got lost very, very quickly, just partially because as an American, you're not used to driving on that side of the road and then you take a left turn instead of a right turn and you all of a sudden almost you know, are in an accident. So you're already disoriented in that way, but it just is the, the way the roads are laid out, everything's so twisted and, and compact. It's just, a, it, especially for as, a, as a US citizen, you're gonna get thrown off a little bit and you can capture that on film so easily
1: what would you change about the story beyond maybe exploring, uh, you know, that those end pieces a little more that, you, like you mentioned a moment ago, like do you have ideas for how you would expand this? I or do think, you think it even needs that much?
2: Expansion? I don't think it needs that much. I think, I think one of the things that could happen to help expand it is that I, I was like toying in my head, like, do you start off like with um, her telling the story and tell, the whole story, as it's encapsulated here, and then at the end of it, rather than they they they, they send her home and farm goes off to investigate on his own, he goes with her and is like, "Let's go, let's go get to the bottom mm-hmm. of this together." Which then gives you grounds to you know keep both of them as protagonists as you uh, reach further into the madness. I also want to know what's in that file, you know, in the (laughs) back room. I feel at some point you need to go back in there and and open that up. I also think that some of the the things that are overtly creepy in the short story, such as the teenagers with rat faces or the child with the clawed hand, I think you get into that in a more um, subtle fashion. And again, like if you watch the... TNT version. They literally <laughs> just did that. Those things like <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they look like the, 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 the rats, uh, the, the witches from the witches, you know, <laughs> like, um,
1: have got that cat wearing that like Terminator two prosthetic on its face.
2: It, it wasn't even prosthetic. <laughs> they comp that in. You could just tell like they comp that in and post. No was like, shit? it was like, it looked to me like it was a freeze frame of like some Photoshop makeup <laughs> that they then applied in, in after effects. <laughs> um, because it is hard to put, granted, it's hard to put makeup on animals and you probably shouldn't do it. And so they were like, how do we do this? And we can't afford a puppet. We can't afford a CG cat. Uh, we're just going to do this in Photoshop. Anyway, I I also, you know, I think you would then also want to save some of the, you know, the the, the street crumbling and the the tentacles. Like, that's a great set piece. Uh, but right. save that for, for later on. Like, don't have Doris' story I, in there. I I kind of hear something that I really like
0: about the story is the interplay between the two officers. Right. And you have kind of the, the guy mm-hmm. that's like more um, uh, weathered and and older and like maybe respects this a little bit more. And then the so you have like a seven kind of thing going on, right? The British version, the Bobby version of seven. You got the young brash guy that just wants to go out and make his name and or whatever. I mean, that's not quite the character, but my my mind is going to that for a movie where maybe the opening of the movie is this insane story, and and instead of them going, uh, you know, uh, one guy going in there, it becomes these two Bobbies that are you know go in and. Uh, you essentially make the movie what happens right after, uh, right after, you know, they get this report from, That's from great this, too, this woman. It,
2: Cause the dynamic between veteran part and Farnham is wonderful. Cause Vetter's is like, yeah. obviously seen it. Like he's read that file in the back and yep. he's, he's sort of like brushing it off. Like he's like, yep, this stuff happens. Like he's jaded. about <laughs> yeah. He's jaded about this, this precinct that he works in. That is a, a portal to another dimension. Yeah. Um, It'd be it'd be a sort of a very serious version of Wellington Paranormal
0: at that point, or it could be... be funny.
2: I mean, that that's another approach. Yeah, that's it. the thing. You can have that that humor, a you know, little
0: bit of that. Uh, we name dropped him like a couple of times already, but you can have that kind of Edgar Wright, touching and heartfelt, but also funny relationship between oh, these two a, two people. What a
2: spinoff from Hot Fuzz this would be, right?
0: Oh <laughs> yeah, fucking oh my god! Can you imagine? Get Simon Pegg and Nick
2: Frost that would be back as those characters incredible. And it would be so fitting. It'd be so fitting of a sequel <laughs> to Hot Fuzz.
0: And then you can have that Cornetto shot, just like they had
2: in the TNT one, and it would fit. Oh, God, so. the circles of reference here are just blowing my mind. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but no, I, I like that. I, the reason I like that angle is that then you can incorporate all the imagery and everything you love in the short story, but tell it from a slightly different point of view. You know, And you can tell it in whatever order you want. It gives you freedom to to open up uh, the world a little bit. They can see things that aren't in the short, you know, it gives, it just opens things up a little bit. Um, And you could also maybe play with a dynamic between the, 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 the jaded one and the brash one. And then one of them gets lost in there and the other one gets out and then there becomes a a rescue mission aspect. You can have, you can go in a million different, different directions with that. One, Um, One thing I
2: love doing in movies is, is letting characters sit down and tell a story. And yeah, And and this would approach this would be pushing the limits of it in a mainstream film. But to to have Doris come in and tell the story and not show any of it and just have her describe and see see how it'd be a great challenge as a writer, filmmaker, and then for the actor performing it to make that as engaging as this short story. So where you're spending 15 minutes listening to her tell this this tall tale that hopefully would get into your skin. And then through Farnham's eyes and you know, perhaps Vedder's and perhaps Doris as well, but at least through Farnham's going and then seeing that stuff realized after the fact would be really mm. a, a fun way to tell the story. Yeah, yeah for sure. Definitely.
0: You give her the Quint Indianapolis speech right out of the gate. Precisely, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: that's exactly right. Um, and, and Scott, be I mentioned in our oh, emails yes. about this that I thought perhaps this story had already been sort of adapted in uh, the film in the mouth of madness yeah. by John Carpenter, not yeah. literally adapted, but that they were, that there was, a, they were tracking in the same, you know, totally. lane, for so
0: sure.
1: The old lady in the hotel, you the, know. the hotel,
2: the, 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 the young man on the bicycle yes, who is yeah. very, the way in which you, um, you know, that you see him is very similar to the rat face teens. And yeah. That's uh, Anakin Skywalker, by the way, that's what I thought, but yeah, it's so- Hayden Christensen, yeah, I watched shit. The movie it last was the first night. thing he did, yeah yeah, and and he's also then like at the very end of the movie, yep, uh as the paper boy, so little, so young, <laughs> <laughs> it was like, oh, yeah, that was
0: before he murdered any Sancho. yes,
2: exactly before order sixty six um but he, I watched the movie last night in preparation for this because I hadn't seen it in a number of years, and i I maybe would walk back my statement just a little bit in terms of this is definitely dealing with the same sort of material. This is, this is in the Lovecraft lane, mm-hmm. but it is going from like zero to 60 in a way that the short story does not. And and that's one of the things I love about the short story is that it, it takes its time. It lets these details build up. It never goes full wall of monsters or I guess it does a little bit, but, yeah, the ground does split open and fucking Cthulhu yes. comes out at the end. It takes so long for that to happen, not in a bad way, but it takes a while for that to happen. And whereas in, in the mouth of madness, things are fucked up almost from the get go. Right. And by the time the wall of monsters appears, you've been so subjected to all these crazy goings on that it's not that uh, it's amazing and you want to see more of it, but it's not as, <laughs> as crazy as you might think.
1: Capturing the the real horror of cosmic horror uh, on screen or even on the page, it strikes me as incredibly difficult. You know, I've I've seen a bazillion variations on it, and most of them just don't work. You know, they don't work in the same way that In the Mountains of Madness does or uh, excuse me, In the Mouth of Madness does. Uh, the short story does or, you know, a lot of Lovecraft's stuff does and I, a lot of it has to do with you know cosmic horror being about the unknowable and you know yeah. things that aren't you know how many times in a lovecraft story is, does he like bail out of doing the description <laughs> and just leaves it up to your imagination you know he gets he gets made fun of for that
2: it's just i mean yeah you can make fun of it but it's that's one of the things that makes it so crazy is that like yeah you your imagination goes into overdrive at that point and and that is of course always going to be it's a cliche to say but it, so it's always going to be worse than whatever you could depict. I think, I think the film version of The Mist is probably the best version of that that I've seen. And one of the things it does so well at the end, you've already seen so many monsters. We've seen tentacles. We've seen people get you know die horrible ways. You see all this stuff. But at the end, you have majesty. And are and 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 that creature that you see at the end, the behemoth, is awesome in the traditional uh, definition of that word. In that it's awe-inspiring. It's terrible, but it's awe-inspiring. And that's what it gets right. And you're also, you know, Darabont very wisely veiled in in the titular mist, so you don't get a good look at it. You just get a sense of that scale mm-hmm. and the sound design creates evokes that sense of something greater than we could comprehend. And I let me be frank. I love In the Mouth of Madness. It's one of my probably top four carpenter movies. But all those creatures are kind of little at the end. You know, it's like it's a (laughs) 25-foot masterpiece by KMB, but like the tentacle monster at the top of it is pretty small. It's not, it does it it's gross. It's 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 closer to like, you know, just like a traditional monster movie monster than something that is meant to evoke uh, an existent awe. Yeah, awe. It's, it doesn't invoke, evoke awe, and I think that is what so few uh, cosmic horror properties have ever done properly. And I, I can't remember if I mentioned this in when we were talking about um, revival, but. True Detective. There's so many allusions to you know weird fiction and and, and Lovecraftian era horror uh, in that first season, and everyone was wondering like, will it actually go there? Will it will it make the jump into that? And for a second, you know, at the end, it does when the when the ceiling opens up into the cosmos, and even though that's all it does, and it's probably just like a vision of of you know dying or a near death vision, that also created that evocation of horror, of, of, of awe uh, and horror. And it's be, and, and it made me realize it's because of so much of what works in a, in a piece of cosmic horror, like, like Crouch In is like the context in which that final revelation occurs. And that's something, again, The Mist did really well, even though you're being confronted with the worst monsters left and right throughout that, that movie, it saves that final beat for the just the right moment and it earns it in just the right way. True Detective did the same thing by having nothing supernatural at all up until that one cosmic vision. And I'm sure there are other movies I'm not thinking of that do the same thing, but it's really about playing that card at just the right time. Yeah.
0: And you have you have to ground everything in a reality that's recognizable. It can't be the movie reality. It can't be too shiny and it, yeah, I mean the mist using that example. It's like, yeah, that's just a little small town grocery store, you know. There it's not It's not a, uh, I don't know, like a triple A block. But it's not the pristine, clean Walmart that you see in uh, in Ghostbusters Afterlife. For you know what I mean? Yes, exactly. It's something that feels lived in. It's something that, in order to have that escalation, you need to start at a at a place where the audience goes, "This is me. This is my recognizable world." And then you like like the 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 frog in the boiling water. You got to slowly up that. Insanity, you yeah. know, instead of the temperature. That, that sense until... of the quotidian
2: is is vital to it.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, uh, all the most successful uh, versions of this are that way. Like any any of the Lovecraft stuff, I and mean, they can be fun. Um, like I'm thinking like From Beyond or anything. You know, the the Stuart Gordon stuff, uh, Dagon, is really good, but it's you know it's it's very much a you know made to be a direct to video kind of uh sh- schlocky entertaining. Right. thing you know but in terms of imagery it captures a lot of the feeling you get from lovecraft but like you need to have that that grounded this is my reality thing especially for a movie you in order to to kind of pull the audience into the insanity and not just have them bounce off right at the beginning they need to be um there in step with the characters
2: yep one yeah. of the things that uh i love also is that you know when the ground breaks open which is a tremendous vision and and I've got different ideas about how you would, you know, put that on, on, uh, put that to commit that to film, but the mm-hmm. tentacles coming through, do the same thing that he does in revival, which is like Lonnie's face is in there. It's not just a, you know, unrecognizable yeah. beast. There's like some right. semblance of, of, uh, of her husband represented in that creature. And that is so terrifying. And you get that with the, the faces at the end of the ant legs and in, in revival as well.
0: Mm. Fucking revival. Yeah, you know what time it is. If you've heard Mister Rob Zombie, that means it's time to read some ads for you in the middle of this podcast. Mm -hmm. So, in order to kick things off, we are going to talk about our friends over at Mac Weldon. It's no secret we all want to look our best this spring, right? I know I do. What about you, Scott? Nope, want to look terrible, but thank you for asking. You were supposed to say you were going to look beautiful in all your Mac Weldon attire. I think that's what what the the oh, I'm going to look
1: beautiful in that Mac Weldon attire. Don't worry about that. But I can't <laughs> I can't be strutting around in my underpants out on Main Street. You know, people, That's get, true. Upset. people That's true, get upset. But they don't have sweatpants.
0: just underpants. They have sweatpants. They have yes. track suits. They have all sorts of things. I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of those right now. So they want me to tell you about their daily wear system. All their clothes work together for real. So whether you're heading into work, going for a run, or just hanging on the couch, getting dressed takes no effort at all. Now, funnily enough, Scott and I live in Texas, which means our need for uh, sweatshirts is probably over until November or so. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: But we do recognize that not everybody has to put up with the hellscape that is our summer. And two, we also love good, comfy sweatpants, who didn't depend on sweatpants living through the past two years. I'm wearing them right now, baby. So, you know, Mac Weldon's got you covered there. For those who actually leave their houses for things like exercise, make sure to check out Mac Weldon's Atlas jogger, half zip, and full zip jacket set made from eco responsible fabric that is also comfortable and water resistant to boot. So, check out Mac Weldon for yourself and save 20% off your first order. If you visit slash KingCast and enter in the promo code KingCast, you can get 20% off your entire order. That's slash KingCast. And I'm here to tell you about another sponsor on this week's
1: episode, which is, of course, our friends over at Athletic Greens. We use Athletic Greens products literally every day here at KingCast HQ. I started taking them because, well, I, you know, I, I need it. I can use it. Lots of people take some kind of multivitamin, but it's important to choose one with the right high-quality ingredients. This stuff does that, and it doesn't taste like it's super healthy either. In fact, it has kind of a mild tropical taste that I actually look forward to each morning. So what is it? With one delicious scoop of Athletic Greens, you're absorbing 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, aging, all of the things. It even supports mental clarity and alertness, which is something I could certainly use while recording this show. Also, it's recommended by pro athletes, not just tubby podcast hosts. So right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's cheaper than purchasing all the ingredients yourself and all for less than $3 a day. One scoop and a cup of water every time. Boom, you are done. So to make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com backslash KingCast. Again, that's athleticgreens.com dot com backslash Kingcast to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance
0: well done scott i think it's time to get back to crouch end with mr david lowry what do you think yes please let's
2: one of the other things about this is like when she looks at you know her watch and the time time is going wrong like, that's yeah. another really easy thing to do cinematically, uh, where just, you know, time is starting to fall apart in a way. And a movie that did that really well, that is not well-loved, but that I thought was pretty good, was the uh, Adam Wingard Blair Witch film. Oh, yeah. which Yeah, I, I like Blair Witch. I like that, uh, you know, yeah. quite a bit. And I thought that that was an amazing... <laughs> an amazing like expansion of the Blair Witch universe, (laughs) like the idea of time not working right. Cause it's, it, it was done so well and it really sets, it set me on edge in a, in a really wonderful way. And, and it, 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 it it functions in reverse. It worked for the first, all of a sudden you look at the first movie differently with that idea in mind, Um, which was really nice.
1: Well, how would you, how would you portray something like that on screen?
2: That one that, you know, the, the, the great thing there was that, it was using night as a um, as a as a signifier of the fact that it, you know it's still just nighttime, and and here it'd be a little trickier. and And you could have them look at their watch. Uh, I think I think, and that's like a cheap way to do it. But I think the one of the things about Crouch End, the real place, is there's a clock tower in the middle. Of it. Yes, and I that's feel what I was like going to say. Like yeah. you could keep having that show up, uh, and but you more than a cutaway to a clock, which I think is like never the ideal way to do it, right. you'd, ha- you'd want to have some character talk about something happening at a certain time. It's like, oh, well the train will pull up, the train always arrives uh, two minutes to two minutes to three and it's, or two minutes to six because it's, it's the evening. Uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and she's like, how long is that? It's 10 minutes now, you only have to wait another eight minutes. And then like that keep, that keep just, you just keep repeating that motif uh, to show that time is like expanding.
0: You could also do something with the sound, right? Because that's the beautiful thing about uh, all those English clock towers. They all like gong, right? So you can have it be going off in rapid succession and then not at all for like a huge chunk of the movie. And then back again. I mean, theres you could have the night come and go in, in like one scene. You know, I mean, you can, you so can many, do a lot so with many, light. You can, push you can do a lot with it, You could push sound. it so far. Yeah. Building that surreality is absolutely key to this working. And that's, you know, where the TNT thing failed. It just, it was just like, you know, we got to get this done. Like, as you said, maybe they had a few days to shoot it. You know, they definitely were on on budget. They they were one of multiple of these uh, shorts in this anthology series. And, you know, it yeah. just wasn't given the time and attention that it, it, it needs. Because you need to be meticulous with this kind of story or it doesn't work.
1: It feels like the bottle episode of that entire anthology series right like that was the one where they really reined it in
2: this is like a a bit of a tangent but have you guys seen this youtube short films called backrooms
0: Mm -mm. Mm -mm. no what is
2: it it's something that is based on I, i just stumbled upon it and it kind of blew my mind and it uh is based on a creepypasta which is like maybe like three sentences long and some young man uh who's 16 years old took those took those three senses and turned it into a series of of YouTube videos and they're legitimately unsettling and the the whole idea is like the 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 um the short story is like someone's at a doctor's office and they lean back against the wall and all of a sudden find themselves in like this basically like a a, a corporate office building Oh, it's, I have
1: seen this. I just cool, looked it up. It's like yeah. the
2: worst lighting, like horrible fluorescent lighting, endless uh, endless labyrinth of terrible lighting and bad wallpaper. And so the sh- first, and first short film that this guy made is like just exploring that for like 10 minutes. And you're just wandering down. And at first it's all shot, it's got a VHS filter. So it looks like it's shot on VHS. And it feels, it's all done digitally, but it feels like he shot it. So first you don't realize that there's any visual effects involved. And you're just like, in this space that is both familiar, but makes no sense whatsoever. And it really throws you off in a way that is very similar to what's happening at Crouch End. And gradually like a creature appears. And then over the course of several of these YouTube videos, which are incredibly popular, they have millions and millions of views. uh, There's a whole almost Richard Kelly-esque sort of like universe being built around this this Mm. idea. But that first one is just like, it's very, you know, it's 10 minutes of like shaky cam of just this, this kid who accidentally falls into this other dimension and just spends 10 or 12 minutes exploring it. And, mm. and you know that there's something in the space with them, but you never have any idea how close it is. You never have any idea what it is. And every now and then he'll come across clues, like something, someone's written something on the wall. I think at one point they find a body and it is really, really unsettling. And it's one of those properties that you can just imagine like agents and executives in Hollywood being like, okay, let's This 16 year old genius has created something. We got to turn this into a movie. And I, I think he, I hope he has a huge career after this, but like, there's, there's no movie that's probably going to be as successfully creepy as these YouTube videos. No, I mean,
1: look up what happened with uh, marble hornets and you know, are you familiar with marble hornets? No, I'm not. Mar that's, that's another rabbit hole to fall down. Um, I'm Googling it. You know, pretty far back now. Like, I'm going to say 10 years or more, but, uh, you know, a series of, uh, video shorts, uh, that were telling this story, a very, you know, through a very fractured narrative with a documentary sort of form format, you know, uh, and it's a slender man thing. Okay. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: and that, you know, slender man was its own little thing on, on something awful that turned into a, a fucking, you know, huge thing online. That led to Marvel Hornets. Marvel Hornets led to a number of Slender Man movies. I think I've watched two or three of those things and they're all like uniformly bad. You know, it just, it just doesn't have the same.
2: The fan, you're talking about the fan made Slender Man ones or, because I know there's like a studio one as well.
1: <clears throat> yeah, there's a couple of them, I think, because I know I've seen more than one and they're all basically the same and it's, it's kind of. I only watched those like once and I'm not even sure if i finished,
0: <laughs> finished
1: either of them, uh, other of either of them. But the, um,
2: yeah, but the Marble Hornets have, has
1: like real horror to it. It's genuinely uh, un, unsettling and, uh, and upsetting in places. And I'll, um,
2: I'll check it out. I, I love discovering things like that on YouTube that are just like, you're like, Oh, I'm going to click on this thing. I don't know what it is. And then, and you find yourself watching like something that is, far more unnerving than any of the uh, output of the studios in, in the horror genre lately.
1: Anyway, so, check out backrooms. It's out of parallel. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yes. I will check out backrooms. You check out Marble Hornets. Um
1: so when are you getting get started on your uh gen script? I guess that's the <laughs> obvious <right>. question here. <laughs> oh Do you think, I, well let me ask, the let me come the at the conversation, that
2: conversation I've written the first
1: six pages. Do you think there's an audience for this? Like, like the way you would want to do it. Do you think that it would be like a hit?
2: I, I yes, I, I think so. I don't think this is like an obscure art house horror film. I think this right is right on. This is something, in spite of its tonal differences, it would be akin to The Mist. It would have that sort of like appeal that could make it into a a, a successful. Mainstream entry into into uh, in the horror genre, and I think don't, that, don't
0: pitch it to the studios using saying the mist because they'll nobody will make it. Is that true? Yeah, sadly, <laughs>
2: yeah. sadly. Uh,
0: yeah. It's, now, well, and it, It's also kind of uniquely poised right now for something like this to happen because the. General audiences are being primed. I almost said groomed, but I don't want to be lumped in with all those Disney boycotter people, but they're being primed right now to understand multiverse stuff. Right. And the universe next door and all that is just going to become common cinematic language. You know, between the Marvel stuff, DC stuff, and then uh, everything everywhere all at once, you know, being a you know a hit on a smaller scale, it's like this kind of this isn't multiverse really, but it's it's uh, it's adjacent, and I think that the audiences might be able to follow this a little bit easier than they would have like ten, min- or 10 I mean, minutes I think ten years ago.
2: I think we've already crossed the the multiverse threshold like in a big way. <laughs> I feel like we've only had like what three movies. In the past 12 months that deal with it but i'm already like okay we're we're gonna hit multiverse fatigue very quickly oh yeah uh but what this does so like that's i think multiverses and alternate dimensions are are similar but this one you're you're you're, you're leaving so much unsaid and i think what a lot of these movies now are doing are making explicit what was suggested and i think what you do with a film like this a story like this you leave a lot of it up to your imagination. You right. don't, you don't delve into, I mean, I love, I love uh, the the Richard Kelly cinematic universe and that's a different topic for another day, but you know, he is, he makes everything very explicit when you watch the box. It's not like, where did that box come from? It's like, I'm going to tell you where that box came from and, <laughs> it, and exactly what cons- global conspiracy uh, cross dimensions led to it being constructed. And right. I, uh, I love that. And I love what he's, he did, did there. And I love the way his movies all tie together. But in, in this case, I'm like, let's be a little bit more explicit perhaps to, to justify the running time of a, of a feature length film, but not that much more than this book already is because, or the short story already is, because that's going to, again, going back to In the Mouth of Madness, when I watched it last night, I was surprised at how quickly it just, it hits full, you know. Throttle. Throttle in terms of just seeing crazy shit. Like before she even sees the kid on the bike, I think she looks out the window and the car is like flying through space basically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then and you get Vigo the Carpathian just instantly there. You get all the creepy kids are already there. Um, mm-hmm. There are like some interesting parallels to Crouch End in that film that I hadn't remembered, which is that the place is called Hobbs End and yeah. which I think is a, a reference to quarter mass stories. But at the end of Crouch End, uh, Farnham's widow, spoiler alert, he dies or goes missing, um, marries someone named Hobbes and much like the Cornetto rapper that we talked about previously everything just kind of circles back on itself.
0: So. <laughs> well and that, that's something that's interesting about this story that, that we touched on a little bit um, but to me that's one of the creepiest things about it isn't that these this place exists and these people enter it, it's that they take a little piece with them when they, if they get out it is forever they're poisoned by they're, it tr- yeah, it is. It's po- they're poisoned, they're traumatized. So the second they set foot in it, they're fucked. But whether like they, the, they uh, die there or not.
2: The electricity in revival, um, same thing. Like you get, y- exactly you get cured and it's it's part of you. Yeah. But like that
0: that whole sequence of her like she's like breaking down in the closet or something, right? And she freaks out yeah. in the closet. It's like that sticks with me. Um and uh I don't know. There's something about that. There's also something about Stephen King he rarely leaves uh, Maine and even then he rarely leaves uh, uh, even more rarely leaves the U S you know, and the fact that he's way out of his comfort zone here and he's just writing in a kind of different style, but bringing all of his uh, uh, his Stephen King character work and his ability to strike these horrific images and all that. He's bringing all of his powers to bear, but he's doing it in a different way than he usually does it. And I think that's what makes, crouch End stand out from most of his other stories is it's not a bunch of uh you know old folks in maine you know talking about you know something supernatural yep you know happening there it's, it' take, uh,
2: takes all those those uh old timer uh upper you know maine colloquialisms and and just exchanges them for some attempts at british uh <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 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 yeah, I I wouldn't say it rings I mean, authentic. I just
0: think that, it, but it, but it does. It's great. Make for a very different kind of flavor of King. And I think I, I mean maybe I think that's, that's one of the
2: reasons why I want to hear the Tim Curry reading this aloud. To hear someone yeah. with that accent, you know, really digging into what he's written uh, must be just oh, so, utter delight. So good. In I I don't you know I have not actually started writing the screenplay. Uh, uh, lawyers <laughs> do not need to come banging on my door. But I do have to say that. I, my wife and I love London and have spent a lot of time there and we've been thinking about uh, moving there at least temporarily. And so we've been looking on the London equivalent of um, Zillow lately mm-hmm. at places. And, and Crouch End's uh, probably very affordable, right? I googled Crouch End the other night. <laughs> it looks lovely. It looks delightful. <laughs> I would love to go go find a lovely home there to, to, to stay in. Yeah, just
0: make sure you're not on a on, on a street with a Towin.
2: Yes, precisely. No Towins. No Towins needed. In <laughs> my life. Take out
0: your liver and lights. It's another fucking phrase that have you guys, really stuck with me.
2: And not not uh, to keep going on tangent. Have you guys been to to Iceland?
0: No, no, I've never.
2: That is, again, like a, one of those places where you go there and you just feel that sense of history. But we went, you know, the, this this one spot there uh, called like, I'm going to butcher the name, but like Tingviler, which is like the site of the first parliament in uh, in Europe, is also a place where people were, you know, I, I guess it wasn't a town necessarily because it wasn't like a druid sacrifice spot, but they did do executions there. And so you go there and you're he- reading all about the history of like, how this is the birth, the seat of democracy in Europe. And like how all these great things came from this one spot in Iceland, which is basically like a Rocky Canyon. And, and then you walk a few steps over and you're like, and this is Gallows rock, which the name speaks for itself. And then they're like, and this was the drowning pool. And you look at this shallow pool of, and imagine all the people who were just held down in it and drowned. And that it's, it's, Right there on the tourist placards, you know, that's part of the, 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 the legacy of this place. And it just sends shivers down your spine because you just feel that there. You just really, you, again, you feel the thinness of that membrane. Oh, you
1: know what other movie
2: filmed in Iceland? I can't
0: think of one. Prometheus.
2: That is a, the, you know, when I went there going to visit those waterfalls, that was like Mm -hmm. number one of my, my (laughs) list. No shit. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's awesome. awesome.
2: They're they're on That's, that's. You know, there you're just like, okay, this is nature. But that's awe-inspiring in the same way that The End of the Mist is. (laughs) It's incredible (laughs) being on the edge of those things. Why do you think that we
1: don't get more Lovecraft-inspired stuff, like, in in terms of movies? Much less TV shows. But do you think it's just a matter of translating Cosmic horror to the screen being difficult? Or do you think that people aren't interested in the sort of, um, to use a word that we've Beaten to death on this on this episode, uh, surreality uh, of of the work. What do you make of that?
2: I don't know. I think there is like an unfortunate like bifurcation of science fiction and horror, mm. and and of course we have things like Alien and Aliens that are classics of both genres, but it doesn't seem to like like um, what was that movie recently, The Empty Man.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh <laughs> God!
2: Like why didn't that? get released you know in a, in a major way because that's dealing with all this stuff it's like why what what is I, I just don't get it I don't know why like that movie got buried I'm sure there's reasons why but I don't understand them and you know obviously I would love to see Guillermo do in the mountains of madness maybe there's some sort of cosmic reason these things don't happen or maybe it's just a, a, a whim of the marketplace but now in 2022 you also have to take into account like dealing with lovecraft himself in a way that i don't think you would have had to maybe like 20 years ago and and so doing direct adaptations is trickier now uh and and rightly so in some ways because you you are having to acknowledge the the reasons that he wrote some of these things and i don't necessarily think you need to always uh um separate the art from the artist or include the artist in the art, but it is something that is part of the conversation now in a way that it wasn't. So now I think it might even be like trickier at at this moment Mm -hmm. in time to do a, a literal adaptation of a Lovecraftian thing. I have not seen the HBO series Lovecraft Country, but I understand that there was some attempt to reckon with that in there.
0: Well, yeah, that's a huge cornerstone of that series is especially being run by people of color and starring people of color. And from their perspective, you know, there you can't not have Lovecraft in your title and, and not bring it up. And, yep. and they do it very smartly in that I think I think that series kind of just unfortunately was like a shotgun effect where they were trying to do too many different things at once. And so it never felt cohesive. But I, I did love that angle of it where where, um you know, essentially the the people that Lovecraft would have hated the most to be uh, tackling his work were uh, were doing it and also giving him the finger
2: at the same time.
0: You know, which is brilliant.
2: That's a, a brilliant yeah. way to to handle a tricky situation with the source material. I don't, you know, I don't see any reason why these movies like um, cosmic horror shouldn't be a genre that people are more familiar with. Or you know, there's it's being utilized in so many different ways. Whether it's you know giant tentacle monsters showing up in Disney movies, which happens all the time. Or or Rick and Morty uh, again right. you know, tentacles like you like where do tentacles show up in, in media in the media landscape these days but again the mist is still it's not a direct Lovecraft adaptation by any means but it is still the most Lovecraftian movie I think I've seen and I love Stuart Gordon's movies I think Reanimator is great I think Dagon is really fun uh, but they don't tap into that in the same way
0: no no they're their own beasts for sure. Colorado Space was good. The Richard Stanley. Uh,
1: I saw.
2: You know, my memory of watching that is so uh, tied to week one of the global pandemic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh really? (laughs) Because it opened that week, or at least it was released on iTunes. That was like, like I was in Vancouver and our movie shut down, and I go back to my house, and I'm like packing my bags to fly home the next day. And uh, I'm like, well, Col- Colorado out spaces on iTunes. I'm going to watch this. And everything is just like, you know, everything I watched in that month, I think, is sort of like really uh, colored, no pun intended, by global circumstances. <laughs> and I, so I, I actually have very little memory of the movie itself, other than a couple of really gnarly, practical visual effects.
1: Cage is on fire in that one. He's doing almost like Donald, like a Donald Trump impression when he's spe- like acting like his father. And shit, it's 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 really good. Uh, shame about what happened with Richard. Yeah, man, I,
2: I suspect we'll never see his *Dunwich Horror*. Um, no, that's not, Yes, that's I, I would like. Gone. I would like to see a proper adaptation of that movie, uh, of that book, uh, at some point, though, because I think you know, *Dagon* came came close in some ways, but I think it could be a really, a really wonderful film.
1: You play video games.
2: I keep. Uh, I don't. The short answer is no, but I keep thinking like I need to get back. I haven't played anything since like Doom Two. Um, oh geez, really? You, you missed into. a chunk. I've missed a lot, and I, I, um, you know, what was the big game that I wanted to play recently? Elden Ring. No, the one with Norman Reedus in it. Oh, oh, um, and Guillermo um, del Toro. Uh, the Death Stranding. Death Stranding. Yes, yes, I wanted to. I, I was like, this sounds like my cup of tea. I want to learn. I want to play this. <laughs> yeah. um, and Definitely. I have not yet. I don't, I just don't have a console. And I was like looking into so much. There's so much amazing uh, advancements and visual effects being done with Unreal these days. And yep. I wanted to get a new PlayStation to uh, to just get a sense of like how that's working in the gaming sphere as well. Uh, but have not, I have not uh, done so yet. And <laughs> They're pretty hard to come by. <laughs> That's exactly why I was like I went online. I was like, oh, they're not. They don't exist. The only game I've played recently (laughs) is this game called Inside, which I think you guys talked about. Yes, and I loved that. That was great.
1: Oh my lord!
2: Like like that is a that is a, a story uh, which is which is fantastic and but even that like i'm so bad at games like i wasn't good at it It took me forever <laughs> to get to like jump yeah. across this one like part and not get killed <laughs> right.
1: if you like that you should try limbo it's the same people made it um same sort of game i i don't really want to tell you too much about oh, it got it but it's beautiful um, to look
2: at like it's that's the thing about it like it's so yes. beautiful to look at that artwork that those, uh, those
1: people that make those games it's like it's a very very small team of people and they they only put out a game every like five or six years. I think we're I think we're about due for their next one. But the reason I asked about games in the first place was um many years ago, like on the uh I think it was on the original Xbox, maybe the 360, uh, Bethesda released a uh a Call of Cthulhu game, which you know sampled all kinds of different uh elements of love crappy and mythology and you're like a detective who's you know investigating some shit and it's in this in this town. I think it's Innsmouth actually. But they absolutely nailed the 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 feeling of, of of cosmic horror in that and the the weirdness of of Lovecraft's writing. And it's wild that that game made on like comparatively, you know, ancient technology now was was more impressive and more um more true to the the voice of of the source material than most of the movies I've ever seen based on based on Lovecraft oh life. and it's it's a magic trick they pulled off with that thing I wish they would remake it
2: I feel like you know the video game like whether you know the whether I've played like a little bit of like Resident Evil and what and the, the alien is isolation. The games that like actually like if you play them in a dark room are actually scary, and I feel like they're you know that's that's something that as a horror fan I need to like treat myself to is is some of the the explorations of the genre in that form.
1: Oh yeah, there's there's tons and tons of great horror games out there. Also, ever get a system? Need recommendations.
2: Let and, me know. And Shadow Over Innsmouth—that's the one I was thinking of. That's the one that became Dagon, and yeah, yes. horror has not ever been adapted before. Creative.
0: No, there was a, uh, there, there was a seventies movie with Dean Stockwell. Oh, uh, rest in peace. That, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Al, um, it's not great, but it's, yeah, it's worth watching. It's, you know, it's, it's a very low budget, early seventies, you know, schlocky, schlocky movie. You can uh, look up the poster. It's, it's, uh, got a really rad, like, uh, like not, I don't think it's hammer. I think it's, uh, fuck. What's the spinoff, the hammer spinoff AIP? No, Amicus Cormans, Amicus, Amicus. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, it might be in that that genre. Oh, I've uh, seen this
2: poster. Yes, yeah, I've I recognize that hairdo.
0: But yes, even even though uh, it, that's the title, it's uh, it it it's not really close to the story at all. So, but I felt the movie nerd urge to correct you when you said something wrong.
2: So <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, I I I have done this before. I think in the last episode, I stayed up awake all night thinking like I meant to say in the mountains of madness. And I said, in the mouth of madness, <laughs> but uh, Scott just did the same thing himself. So I'm not oh, going yeah. to hold yeah. my the fire too much for that. Potato
0: potato. <laughs> it's what I say. Yes. Yeah. We and know so, what we're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh,
1: people don't try to play games with us.
0: <laughs> Sweet. Well, I think we're kind of at the, the end of the, the line here. Yeah, so I, I, I need speak. to go,
2: I need to go look into the rights to this and. <laughs> yes. See if I can uh, acquire for the love them. Of God. And uh, one of these
0: days you're going to make your Stephen King thing. I mean, every,
2: every book that comes out, we, my agent and I are like, is this the one, is this the one? And he's got like the full hardcover collection of everything, you know, first editions. And, Mm. and every time I'm at his house, I'm like looking through, like, is there one that I've forgotten? Is there something I can, you know, (laughs) something I'm I'm not thinking of, but, uh, but it'll come at the right time. Everything, everything in its own time. And I look forward to someday, uh, you know, I loved hearing Pablo Lorraine talk about getting to go stay at King's house, basically.
0: Yeah. I'm oh God,
2: what a treat that would be. <laughs> just to go spend the spend a weekend there. And I forget the phrase he used. He's like, you're when he when he took him to the guest house, he was like, You're the only person staying here, but you won't be alone. <laughs> ah, just like, what a great way to like for a for a host to leave their guests to unpack their bags.
0: <laughs> ah. <laughs> Wonderful. Um
1: I had a question there and I just forgot it. Yep. Not coming back. Save it for
2: the next one. Save it. You, yes. Now, yes. Now we haven't, you haven't told me what book to go read na- next. So maybe we'll set to yield to email me, but it would only be fitting that you tell me which, uh, which forgotten tale I need to revisit. Oh,
1: that's what the question was. I was going to ask if you're looking forward to fairy tale. That seems like it would be right. I'm really early. looking
2: forward to fairy tale. I really like, whether it's the cover art or the description or just like the title itself, I'm, I'm in a fantastical mood these days. i I'm, I'm, you know, starting with Green Knight, moving on to Peter Pan and Wendy. I want to, I'm, I'm really engaged in the, in the fantasy side of storytelling and, and knowing that that's where King is going as well. I'm, I'm wondering if there'll be a, an avenue to pursue there, but we, we shall see. I'm very excited to read that Same. 700 pages of it. Oh, it's yes. a
1: doorstop! I can't wait. Yep. Oh, it's right. gonna be so good. Really excited about that one. Um, this is usually the point in the show where we allow our guests to, you know, kind of pitch whatever you got coming up or draw attention to whatever you'd like to draw attention to. Um, I know you're still working on Peter Pan and Wendy. Yeah.
2: Yeah, that will. Um, we're, we're we're in the nearly picture locked. I think when we last spoke, I was still shooting it. If I remember yes. correctly, it was a mm-hmm. couple weeks out from finishing. Now yep. we're a couple of weeks out from locking picture and then we've got a long summer of waiting for visual effects to be done uh to look forward <laughs> to. And in the meantime I'm going to go shoot something else this summer that should be fun, some little a little just a diversion and then I have another movie that is we're starting to cast now that uh, I'll be very excited to talk about in the future if it comes together. But if it doesn't, then I'm sure something else will emerge. But are <laughs> so you wrote
0: this little movie uh, here here in the the states? Are you gonna
2: the the thing this summer uh, will be shot in the states and going to be close to Texas? It will not be. Um, oh, damn! But it, it that is... was my way of trying to sneak on on your set. <laughs> it, it it could very well come out before Peter Pan Wendy, um, and. Then, <laughs> For any um, any fans of the Green Knight, we're in the process of putting together a very lovely collector's edition uh, Blu-ray HD or 4K HDV version, whatever whatever the latest technology is. And um, so I'm I'm digging back into the files on that movie for the first time since we finished it over a year and a half ago, and just pulling out you know scenes that didn't make the cut and recording commentaries and. Shooting a couple of new things to to put on the disc because I'm a diehard fan of physical media and want to make something that I would be proud to have on my shelf. Awesome! Yeah, I would. I'd
1: love to hear a commentary track on that one from you.
2: I will be uh, recording it in a couple of weeks, and uh, maybe I'll, I'll find some way to just reference this particular recording in there. A little Easter egg, a little <laughs> Easter egg for, for, a for posterity.
1: Yeah, uh, that'd be cool. A little Easter egg. <laughs> well, thank you again so much for being here. Uh, a, a lovely as always, and you are you are always welcome to come back. And wow. we will think on what to what to you know recommend to you from the King pile next. Yeah, we could
2: put it, put it out to the listeners too. If there's something that because again, I I had read Nightmares and Dreamscapes as a uh, I love the pluralization of that by the way. <laughs> uh, dreamscape's dreamscape's uh, <laughs> you know when I was quite young, and so when I went back to Crouch End, I I was realize i had read this but the two stories that really stuck out to me that i have never forgotten about were the the finger the crawl the moving finger the and, moving finger and yeah. no one's cadillac two very process oriented stories um and very uh, much so and so uh it was a treat to like find it, even i'd forgotten about the house on maple street and that chris van Allsburg book was such a a favorite of mine and yes and, histories uh, of
1: Harris Burdick
2: and I was maybe you guys know did, did his family's stories ever get published the ones that he talks about in the afterward about like how they all sat down to each tackle one
0: not that I know of yeah yeah if it did it it uh it didn't make any sort of wide publication
2: in any case I love his I love his his story and I love that Van Alsberg book and it was just a wonderful trip down memory lane to, to revisit these so I look forward to more of the same and also to reading uh reading fairy tale this summer
1: Well, we look forward to hearing you again. And, um, you know, good luck uh, finishing out Peter Pan and Wendy. And uh, we'll talk to you
2: again soon. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it.
0: Many thanks to David Lowry for coming back. That dude is a pleasure. That's a delight. Comes with the insight, comes with the Stephen King nerdiness. He's the total package, baby. Overflowing with good ideas, that David Lowry. Love talking to that guy. Every single one of our chats with him so far has, has seemed to have devolved into, like, how are we would we make this a movie? And, like, I got to say, I'm kind of proud with the stuff we come up with when we do that stuff. I'm like, this would be an actual good pitch for for how to make a, a Crouch End movie, I think.
1: And I think that sooner or later we can bully David Lowry into doing some sort of adaptation. We just don't know what it is yet. But, yes, thank you, David, for for coming back. And we will certainly be hearing from you uh, again Perhaps very soon, in fact. Uh do you want to tell them about next week's main feed episode? We got a we got a big week coming up, gang.
0: Yeah, yes indeed. Next week's our big anniversary show. You may remember last year we did the Skeleton Crew stunt spectacular where we brought in twenty guests to cover all the stories from Skeleton Crew. And because uh, we're gluttons for punishment, we did that again, except this time we are doing the Night Shift of 100 Stars.
1: Yes, that's right.
0: You'll be hearing from a lot of your favorite KingCast guests in their five to seven-ish minutes yes. <laughs> chunks uh, uh, going through each and every story from from Night Shift, yeah.
1: We're keeping the same general idea here as what we did last year, but we have changed it up in a number of ways, which you will find out once you listen to the show. Going to be some surprises. I can tell you after um, 20-something recordings that uh, it's going to be very unhinged. Uh, (laughs) Once you hear what everyone has done with their segments, it's... uh, (laughs) It's, a uh, there's a lot. Um, if if you thought
0: last last year's was chaotic, you ain't seen nothing yet.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, this is a celebration, as Eric pointed to a moment ago, of our, uh, you know, some of our most popular and favorite guests over the previous year who have, who have come back to celebrate this thing with us. Uh, don't want to give any names up just yet, but I think you folks will be very happy with the lineup we have secured.
0: And that won't be it for what's hitting the main feed next week. We'll we'll hear a little bit more on that later. But there's a little juicy taste. The, the main feed's going to be pretty busy next week.
1: Yes, uh, look for an announcement about that on Friday. Uh, we may also have a another announcement to make uh, at some point during the week. Uh, fingers crossed. This Friday on the Patreon, we are tackling David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone. Our first our first commentary. Uh, for the Dead Zone. And we are bringing in film critic Jordan Hoffman to help us with that. Uh, Jordan is a, boy, he is a character, uh, a very good writer. Uh, he is seen and just about everything you can name. Mm-hmm. And uh, we imagine that he will provide us with a uh, very informative and entertaining commentary. So look forward to that on the Patreon this Friday.
0: Indeed. So yeah, stay tuned next week for a whole bunch of fun stuffs, including our epic anniversary second birthday of the king cast mm-hmm. show terrible news baby we're gonna be whining we're teething right now it's 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 really <laughs> impressive here. um yeah so we got our big anniversary show and uh then we'll see you guys this friday for our commentary on the dead zone it's gonna be a fun one. adios folks the king cast is a fangoria podcast production the show is produced hosted and created by eric Vespi, that's me and scott wampler Tira Ansley and Abby goel are executive producers Daniel Danger is our art director, and editing is done by yours truly.